There was a show I used to watch as a child, and some of you may remember it. It's called Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Angela Lansbury. Murder, She Wrote was this thrilling sort of mystery, and it always began, of course, with a murder. Now, these days, I know there's CSI, and there's CSI New York, and CSI Omaha is next, or whatever. No. <laughs> but, but, but in those days, I'm a little partial. I haven't watched any CSIs. I, I, I still sort of think Murder, She Wrote was sort of vintage murder mysteries. But what it did for me as a child, maybe unintentionally, is it made murder, or it made my introduction to murder, uh, very distant. So murder sort of seemed like this distant idea. It was, some, it was the stuff of TV shows, not the stuff of real life. Growing up as an, now as an adult, unfortunately, murder has become a, a closer reality. And you think about, for all of us in Colorado, we think about the mass murders, and we think about uh, last summer's ev- tragedy in Aurora, and even for New Life Church, you think about, you know, in, in uh, the fall of 2007, or Christmas of 2000, December of 2007. And, and unfortunately, this idea of mass murders uh, has become has come a little closer to home, and what it has sparked as a national conversation is a conversation about gun control and a conversation about how do we curb the effects of violence. And so you have one group of people in this conversation that says, "Listen, the problem is not guns. The problem is certain people. It's it's crazy people. We, we've got to we've got to get rid of the, these certain people. These people do bad things. It, it's not the guns at all." And then you have another group in this conversation. This vibrant national conversation that, that maybe says, yeah, listen, the problem is not certain people. The problem is certain weapons. And so we've got to get rid of certain weapons. And probably you've maybe aligned yourself with one side or the other. I find myself trying to say, wanting to say something to both sides, to the, to the group that says the problem's not weapons. The problem is evil and sin. I want to say, well, it's precisely because we believe in the fallenness of human beings that we have laws to curb the effects of what fallen people can do, right? But then to the other group that says, no, listen, it's all about the weapons and it's all about this stuff. That's how we get rid of murder is we curb the weapons. I want to say the problem is deeper than that because humans have always found a way to commit acts of violence, sadly. Jesus in our text today says something <laughs> that's even more radical than what I want to say. What I want to say maybe just kind of addresses the issues at a surface level, but what Jesus does is he takes this to a whole level, a level that, if we're honest with ourselves, we find deeply offensive. Because what Jesus does is he says, I don't want to talk to you about certain people, and I don't want to talk to you about certain weapons. I want to talk to you about the human heart. I want to talk to you about something that is so common that all of a sudden it puts a murderer on level with the person who has ever had anger in their heart. Now, right off the bat, we think this is a tremendously offensive statement. There was a story of a, of a college professor who assigned the Sermon on the Mount as an uh, English essay assignment. And she asked students to read the Sermon on the Mount and then to write an essay about the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a secular college. And so several of the students, they were like, why are we reading this? This is fiction or this is whatever. And, but some of the students were more bold and more honest. And they said, Jesus, this is the most stupid, unhuman teaching I've ever heard. Now, 
you, when you hear that, you're like, whoa, whoa, how dare you say that? But on the other hand, you're getting the raw, unfiltered, unstained glass window reaction to the words of Christ. Imagine maybe that in the first century when Jesus is giving this sermon, the response being something similar. What do you mean, Jesus? How could you equate these things? How can you, how can you put these things on level? That is insanity. And that is the offensiveness of the sermon. We're in a series called Arriving. Arriving is the name we've chosen for the series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I think it would be a great exercise for you to read this, maybe even read this, these chapters over and over again over the next few weeks because we're going to be in this till October, y'all. <laughs> and we'll take a few weeks break here and there, but we'll be in this a while. And we've called it Arriving because Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of God is not about how to escape earth and fly away to heaven, but the kingdom of God is Jesus' announcement that His reign, the God who rules from the heavens, is now coming to rule on the earth. So when Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying that place we fly away to and float on clouds and play harps. He's saying, no, the God who rules from the heavens is now going to rule on the earth. And Jesus is saying, and this is what it will result in. It results in a new kind of people. And so that's why the first part of Matthew 5, if you've been with us in the series, Jesus has spent a lot of time saying who we are. He says, we're the called ones. He talks to us like we're the disciples. And then he, he talks to us and says, you're the blessed ones. You are the ones, even you, the poor and the hungry and the meek and the peacemakers and You're thinking, what? The people that don't win? Jesus is saying, no, you're the truly blessed ones. And then a couple weeks ago, we heard him say, and you are salt and you are light. This is who you are. And last Sunday, we heard Jesus kind of start to shift. He's still in his sermon preamble, just like I am. (laughs) Takes a while. And he says, now that I've told you who you are, let me tell you who I am. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the one. I am the fulfillment. I am the culmination of the Old Testament. Every story up until this point has been pointing toward me. In fact, Jesus is saying, I am the one that embodies the Israel story. I embody the human story. I am the one. It's a marvelous way to read the Old Testament And ask yourself to say, how does this make me long for or point toward Jesus? It's really difficult to kind of open the Old Testament and, you know, do this finger on page method and, you know, look for the thing and say, okay, what's the principle I need to apply? I told this story last week when I was preaching up at the main campus, but Holly was reading through the book of Judges out of the children's Bible with Sophia, our eight-year-old. And Sophia stops her after Samson and Delilah and says, mom, how long do I have to wait before there's a good marriage in the Old Testament? It's a great question, isn't it? Because we have this illusion that the, Old Te- that the Bible is like Aesop's fables. It's full of morality tales and good stories. But where is it? Where is that model family in, in, in the Old Testament? They're not there. In fact, all of the Old Testament is a little bit like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy where you get kind of to the end of the second book or the second movie, however you've experienced it here, and you get to the end and you, you, someone has said Tolkien's point was to say the world is full of chaos and crying out for a king and there is none fit to rule. That's a little bit like what the Old Testament does. 
Because you have this chosen people and you have all this hope and then they're unfaithful and then they get kicked out of the land and they come back to the land and you're like, now it's going to be great except the walls are in ruins and the temples run down and you're thinking, is it going to be great? And you're kind of, you're at the edge of your seat, the Old Testament saying, who can save? Who can rule? Who is righteous enough to judge and restore? And Jesus steps on the scene and says, I am the one. So, He's told us all this in the Sermon on the Mount so far. He's told us who He is and what He can do. But He's not just the fulfillment. He's also the one who can show us what the law really points toward. So Jesus says, look, not, not one of these things will pass away until I fulfill them, until they are fulfilled and He fulfills them. And then He says, now, don't teach anyone to disobey these commands. And very likely He's talking about all the commands He's about to give in the rest of the sermon. And so, you say, well, does Jesus really mean for us to follow this and to live this way? Yeah, I think he does, because when Matthew ends his gospel in Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? He says, go into all the nations, making disciples, teaching them to obey. What, old Torah? No, to obey all the things I taught them, which is likely why Matthew compiled all the things Jesus taught them in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. So Jesus, in a very real way, is saying, okay, look, This is the heart of the law. This is the righteousness that God is really after. This is the very thing God's been getting at. Now, some of you, I know, this bothers you because it it sounds like God changed his mind or like, hey, Glenn, come come on now. What what about the rules? But actually, it's not that different from what we do as parents. Because when your child is, oh, say, three years old or so, you'll say to them, when you first take them out in public, to church or whatever, you'll say, okay, little Johnny, don't talk to strangers. Like, that's the rule. Do not talk to strangers. Okay, all right, whatever. I don't even know what a stranger is, but okay. (laughs) And then as they get a little older, they're five or whatever, and and you take them out and you say, okay, hey, Johnny, say hi to Miss Susie over here. And Johnny said, no. I said, say hi. You said don't talk to strangers. Like, okay, okay, okay. Here's what I mean. If I'm here, then you can talk to a stranger. Okay. <laughs> then they get a little bit older and they're off to school or, or, or you know, somewhere else and, and they say, I don't have any friends. And you say, okay, listen, 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 Johnny. Here's what I want you to do. Find a person, go up to them, and introduce yourself. But you said I could only talk to strangers if you're there. <laughs> like, no. Here's the heart of what I'm saying. Be discerning about whom you make friends with. So all of a sudden you move from this, don't talk to strangers to, look, here's the deal, be discerning about who you make friends with. It's the same, we do this with parenting, from listen to everything I'm saying, obey, to here's this heart of honor, right? So Jesus is kind of doing this, he's saying, look, the, the, the commandments is God dealing with his people as if they're toddlers. Okay, y'all, this is a primitive, crazy world, there's lots of violence and chaos. I tell you what, stop killing one another. Let's start there. Don't murder your brother. (laughs) And then you get to Jesus and he says, okay, you know what the real heart of the law is? I want to get rid of the thing that makes murder possible. That's what I'm really after. See, Jesus in this way is the last word on what God thinks about anything. This is why we can't kind of take the Bible and say, okay, this whole book is magic and we read it all the same way. No, 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 no. There's a story going on. And Jesus is called the Word of God because He is what God has to say about everything. And when you want to know what is God really like, what is God really after, we say, well, let's 
Look at Jesus, which is why we're doing this series. Okay, now here we go. So what is it? (laughs) What is it that makes murder possible? What is that thing inside all of us that makes this possible? It's anger, Jesus says. But what is it about anger? What makes anger so dangerous? What is it about anger that makes it so dangerous? I was inspired by Patton's use of paintings last week that I thought we should use a painting this week. Um, I am not near the intellectual that Patton is, so I can't give you like this whole treatment of, of you know, art study. But maybe some of you that are artists in, in the room have already noticed something about the painting right away. Do you notice how the cane side of the picture is all dark? And there's clouds, and it's ominous, and there's something wrong. And you look at the Abel side, where his altar is, and you see the, the light, and even his use of light and perspective is showing us something here. But you know what's interesting? This is from the 16th century. All of these um, uh, 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 Renaissance, post-Renaissance era paintings of Cain and Abel, they all show Cain above Abel. Now, I suppose it's easier to kill someone when you're above them than below them, but I think there's a psychology to this, that the thing that makes murder and anger possible is the thing that you do to push someone else down. And so you have, in in almost all these paintings, you have Abel's face turned away, and you have Cain's face turned down. Kind of this downward push, the lifting up of yourself. What makes anger so dangerous? Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The first thing I want to say is that anger, part of what makes it so dangerous is that anger creates distance. Anger creates that, that push off, that distance. What do I mean by that? Some of you will be familiar with this phrase, but It's the concept of creating the other, the quote-unquote other with a capital O, the person who is outside of your in-group, the person who doesn't belong to your tribe, the person who is fundamentally different than and maybe against your way of life. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you could say, yeah, I've been angry at people and I've done exactly that. I have created an other. I've created distance. There's a famous story from the 1960s, a Yale University professor named Stanley Milgram. Some of you will be familiar with these experiments because they were done while the Nazi war trials were going on and they were trying to discover what it is that that allows a person to comply with an authority even if it means inflicting great pain on someone else. And so you've heard this experiment. Basically, there was Milgram, who's the authority figure. And then you have the person who's kind of the student figure. And then you have a test subject. And there was an electric charge, a a voltage that was hooked up to it. And basically, at the authority figure's instruction, the student would have to turn up the charge each time and inflict a certain shock to the subject. And... He would have standard responses to each thing. So maybe at a certain wattage, the person would, and and Milgram would say, well, it's okay. He's fine. All right. Crank it up to the next level. The scream gets a little louder. It's important for this. It's really necessary for the experiments we're doing. Crank it up. Next level. Starts to get really painful. Then there's this 
blood-curling kind of screams, and the authority figure says, listen, I am telling you, you do not stop now. You must keep going. Do you know they found that of the people that did this, 68% of the people went all the way to the highest notch. It's crazy. And one of the you know, sort of hypothesis of this experiment was, look, it's not just a person's character. It's sometimes this feeling of being under authority and all, all of this stuff. But you know what else? And this is the part that relates to our, our talk today. What else they discovered is when they eliminated the proximity between the student and the subject, in other words, when the person who was receiving the pain was not in a room, but when you were right next to them, when you had to actually put your hand on the shocker thing, do you know how that number went down from 68% all the way down to 30%? Because it's distance from another that makes it more possible to do hurt to them. Once you've created an other, all of a sudden you can justify all the violence that you do to them in word or in deed. Think about this. Think about the people that you say, oh, well, they are different than me or they are not like me. And because you've separated them and you've created this philosophical distance or ideological distance, now all of a sudden it's okay to say things about them. Right? I mean, we do, we do this. We do this with words, mostly. Oh, well, as soon as they leave the room. Oh, my gosh, I'm glad she's gone. My goodness, was that overbearing or what? Distance makes injury to another possible. So anger is dangerous because it creates this distance, but Jesus goes on, he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Listen to this. Anger cultivates disdain. It cultivates disdain. Jesus very intentionally says, whoever says to your brother, you fool. Because is he your brother or is he a fool? Is, he your, is she your sister or is she fool? Clearly, it seems Jesus is drawing on this Cain and Abel thing where they were brothers. But something happens in the heart that creates this anger and anger begins to cultivate a disdain where all of a sudden, I haven't just made you the other and created distance, I now have disdain for you. I now have a name for you. Oh, think of that. Do we have names for people? Naming in Hebrew culture, of course, is very significant because a name was not just how you address someone. A name was how you defined someone. And so Abram gets a new name, Jacob gets a new name. People get new names as a way of saying, this is your identity. And I'm not sure that names work all that differently for us. Because we come up with a label or we come up with a title and we slap it on somebody and we say, that is who you are. You're you're a crook. You're a scumbag. You're a loser. You're a cheater. You're a liberal. (laughs) You're a pagan. You fool. I've got disdain for you now. I've got a name for you. You sell out. You traitor. You coward. You backslider. You compromiser. Christians have names too, though, don't we? Just more religious sounding, right? You Pharisee. What? You legalist. 
the names that create disdain. Anger finally culminates in destruction. Jesus knows that it's only a matter of time before our exterior life begins to resemble our interior life. Jesus knows it's not long before everything on the outside begins to resemble what we've been nurturing on the inside. And so the anger that builds up, that creates distance, that, creates, that cultivates disdain, ultimately shows up in destructive behavior. See, anger creates a cycle of vengeance and violence and sets us on a path of destruction and judgment. Anger creates this cycle. Say, well, Glenn, (laughs) I don't want that. I mean, I think you're right. I think anger does do that. I think anger towards a person that you've never met. You know, it's fascinating to me. I, I grew up in a democratic parliamentary system of government Muslim country, Malaysia. Thanks to the British, there's a good system of government there. But I had plenty of friends that were Hindus and Buddhists, and yes, Muslims. And it's very interesting how in a culture where we don't, we're not surrounded by people of other religions very much, how easy it is to villainize one particular religion. How easy it is to cultivate this disdain or this anger toward, and maybe even justify our violence against. Because they're not a person anymore. They're a Muslim. Church, this is a dangerous path. This is a dangerous road. And you can fill in the blank. You can fill in the blank with your cultural enemies. Shall I name a few of them? They're probably on the different end of the political spectrum as you. They probably have a different vision of love and marriage or sexuality than you. That you have cultural enemies that you have easily created anger toward and it becomes easier for you to do violence against them with your words and with your deeds. And Jesus wants you to to know this morning that that is a path of destruction. That that will not work. That's going to result in a cycle of violence and vengeance. And it's going to set you on a path of judgment and destruction. There's three escalating images that Jesus says. He says, look, you're going to be guilty of judgment. You're liable to the council. You're in dangers of the fires of Gehenna, that trash heap outside Jerusalem that was a picture of final judgment. Many of the commentaries I read this week said Jesus is using this Hebrew device of parallelism, kind of building, escalating consequences, but with the same point. And the point is this. Murder? You think that's bad? Anger is in the same family. And anger is just as destructive. Now, once again, we want to say, Jesus, you are crazy. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. And Jesus says, what's in your heart? Have you ever let anger fester? Because that's the same thing that sets you on a path of destruction. Right away, right right at this point in the sermon, we want to say, okay, Jesus, stop, stop. You're making me squirm. Because I'm not that bad. Don't compare me to a murderer. 
But if we're going to take the words of Jesus seriously, we have to hear what he wants to save us from. He wants to save us from the anger that sets us on a destructive road. He wants to save us from the anger that puts us on the road to destruction. Say, so, all right, Glenn, I, I get it. I don't want the cycle of vengeance and violence. I, I don't want to cycle and recycle revenge. I don't want death and all of his friends. Coldplay. I don't want it. I don't want it. What do we do? Why do we get angry? What is it inside of us causes us to be angry? My, my next piece of art is a very uh, elaborate painting. Oh. A little pop culture for you. You don't like me when I'm angry. Why do we get angry? What makes us angry? One of you said it. Self-preservation. How about this word? How about the word fear? How about when we are afraid for our own lives? You know, fear makes you do some crazy things. Fear makes it really all of a sudden much more possible to do violence against someone else. Fear is that thing that makes anger boil inside of us. It's interesting as I've talked to different couples over the years, sometimes doing premarital and other situations, to ask couples to pay attention to the thing that is really deeper than the argument. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself in the middle of an argument? Maybe you take a break from the argument. And you think, why, what am I really ang- what, why, why am I getting angry? And you come to find out that there's something deeper than the situation. So you always want to take the argument to the situation level. Well, no, it's because... It's because she's always pestering me and it's because I have to you know, you know, get ready for, for this project or this thing. And, oh, it's because he's not attentive to me. It's because of this. And, so what is it really? And so many times it, it's amazing when the lights come on for people and the Holy Spirit does His work because people say, you know what? The truth is, I'm afraid that He's going to leave. And so I, 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 I say these things and it comes out as anger, but really there's a fear that he's going to leave, and I, I don't want that. I feel scared. Or someone else says, well, you, you know the reason I, 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 I do this, and I, I, I push the kids away, and I, I push my spouse away. It's, it, I, all the anger comes up because really I'm afraid that I won't be enough for my family. I'm afraid that I'll never be able to provide enough. I'm afraid that we won't be able to have the vacations we want. I'm afraid that I won't have money for their college, which is a real fear. Uh, but, And all of a sudden we say, you know what's underneath the anger? You know what's animating this anger is really fear. But confessing our fears to one another is what makes intimacy really possible, isn't it? Expressing our anger does not make intimacy possible. Our anger at one another. Unless we say, you know what's deeper than that is a fear. And I I need to confess this fear to you. I'm afraid that I will not be enough for you. And that's really why you see all this anger in me about my job and my work and my career. Honey, I, I never knew that. What? I, I, of course you're going to be in, enough for me. Maybe another thing that animates our anger is this word, control. <laughs> that ultimately why we get angry is because it's a reminder that we're not in control. <laughs> And I don't like that. 
And you don't like that. I can remember um, uh, a particular season where I was particularly more irritable with our children than just normal, everyday irritability. (laughs) Confessions of a parent, right? And I remember there's this stretch where it was just like, I was just extra irritated at everything, at the, at the mess in the house and the this and that. I was like, come on, kids, pick up. Get and I sat down one day to pray and I said, well, what is going on? Like, why all this anger? And I realized there were things in my job, in my work that were beyond my control. And I was feeling anger about that. And so I took it out on the thing I thought I could control which is our children, because of course we can control our children, right? I mean, if there's one thing we can control, it's these little ones. Oh, no. Oh, no. Watch for that. Maybe in a way, anger is your built-in alarm system. And every time you feel your blood boiling, you say, you know what? This is God's way of reminding me that I'm not in control. And I can let it boil out into anger. Hulk. (laughs) Or something else. And maybe this comes down to an even deeper question than this. Can I ask you a few questions? What do you really believe? Do you believe you really are alone in the world? I have a feeling Cain really believed that he was alone. That he had to make it happen. What do you really believe? Do you believe that if I don't do this, then this will happen and therefore I've got to control, change, force? What do you really believe? Our children are wonderful children, but they do fight. And often they fight violently, (laughs) the the way that children do. And it's so interesting as a parent when you're standing right there and you see, you know, Jonas grabbing something from Nora and Nora grabbing it back and then him doing his three-year-old back slap and Nora doing a little six-year-old shove. And I'm right here. I'm like, guys... It's not like you're not going to get caught. Like, I'm right here. And I've had this conversation over and over again with our kids where I say, you know, honey, I, I know what happened. Well, Dad, you, he took that away. I, I saw it. But, Dad, he hit me. I, I saw that. And I wonder how often that is what our Father in Heaven says. But God, he just ruined my interview. And God, she, she like just backstabbing me to my friends. And God's like, I saw that. No, I, 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 I'm right here. But you don't understand. He took my this away and she took that away. And I've got to, and if I don't grab it back, then I won't have it. What I say to my children over and over again is, I will help you. I will help you. You're not alone in this world. You're not children 
in the Lord of the Flies trying to figure this out. I'll help you. I'm here. And I think this is what God is saying. To every impulse toward anger, Jesus is saying, I, 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 I'm, I'm right here. What does Jesus do with anger? What does the gospel have to say about our anger? Say, well, hey, hey, Glenn, listen, I may not be that savvy about the Bible, but I know Jesus got angry. You're right, he did. In fact, in Matthew's very gospel, a few chapters later, Jesus will call the Pharisees fools. Like, oh boy, we got a problem. I thought you said don't call. But you know a funny thing about Jesus' anger? Jesus got angry and he healed a guy. <laughs> he did. These Pharisees were quibbling about the man with the healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus, it says, and Jesus got angry and he said, stretch out your hand. I'll heal you. <laughs> like, what? What kind of anger produces healing instead of violence? Only Jesus' anger. And I want to posit a little hypothesis for you today because I hear Christians justify their own anger at society or at political leaders. Then they justify their anger. This is a righteous anger. I would like to suggest to you that only the righteous one has righteous anger. That only the holy one has holy wrath. This is why Jesus said, you want to throw the stone at that woman? Okay, go ahead. Which one of you hasn't got sin? Duh. Take my stone and go home. So I'll say the same to you. You want to have righteous anger at some great problem in the world? Okay, go ahead. As soon as you are done with every sin in your heart, go ahead and get angry. I don't think this is for us. I think this is for Jesus. Because Jesus got angry and laid down his life for the people who angered him. You and I get angry and we want to take the life at least in our minds, of the people who anger us. Listen to how Jesus worked through anger. Did Jesus have this impulse for control and self-preservation? No, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. Self-preservation? I got nothing. There is no more vulnerable position than this. And Jesus, God himself, was crucified. St. Francis of Assisi talked about the unguarded life being the cruciform life, the life that looks like this. It's not the life that looks like this. Fists up, come on! But this. Jesus said to the Father in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. See, Cain took matters into his own hands. Jesus on the cross prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said, if you find that your brother has offense against you, on your way to the altar, set your gift down and go and make it right. Jesus on his way to the altar of the cross, the altar of Golgotha, where he's ready to offer up his own life as a sacrifice. Jesus on the cross says, I know I am here because all of these people have this against me and really have this against you. And so I pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Everything Jesus is telling us to be, He is. 
He is. And that's the freedom that the gospel creates in you. It turns out that all of the righteousness that God is after, He's already given you in Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This kind of heart, this kind of righteousness has been put inside you. But even more than that, if you can say more than that, He gives us the Holy Spirit. Pours out the Holy Spirit into our lives. So that we can say, alright, Holy Spirit, what is this anger rising up in me? Where is the fear it comes from? Where is the desire for control that it's clinging to? Oh, Spirit of God, take it away. I want to ask you to try a confession out with me today. Because we come to Jesus with our fear and with our control. And Jesus says to us, fear not. Fear not. You know, it's the most frequent command in all of Scripture, fear not. Does God know that our fear makes us do crazy things? I think so. So we come to Jesus with our fear and with our desire to control an ex-wife or an ex-husband or children or friends or backstabbers or gossips or traitors. And Jesus says, fear not. We say, but God, I want to control their life and I want to fix this and I got to control this and I got to control. And Jesus says, hey, 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 hey. You know what? You're right. You are not in control. But I have something better for you. You are loved. Church, the question for you this morning is, are you willing to believe that it is better to be loved by God than it is to be in control? Is it better to be loved by God than to be in control. Here's a confession I want us to say together. I am not in control, but I am deeply loved by the God who is. Man. Can we say that together? I am not in control, but I am deeply loved by the God who is. Say it one more time. I am not in control, but I am deeply loved by the God Take a deep breath. One more time. I am not in control, but I'm deeply loved by the God who is.